Hello and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. This month, three researchers will explain how quantum theory is being applied to their own work in this cutting-edge field of scientific discovery. Nigel Scrutton explores proton tunneling in enzymes, Alexandra Alea Castro discusses her latest research in photosynthesis, and Jenny Brooks introduces us to a quantum model of olfaction. Thank you very much, Deborah. Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight, we're going to hear from three practitioners in the field, talking about their research and, and explaining what it is, how is it that quantum mechanics looks like uh, it's playing uh, a very important role uh, in, uh, in uh, biology and, bi and biochemistry. Um, I've chosen my speakers carefully. Uh, in fact, the, the, uh, the, the, the first and third took part in my recent BBC4 uh, documentary on quantum biology, um, Jenny and Alexandra. Uh, and um, they're going to each talk about a different aspect uh, um, quantum where quantum mechanics plays a role uh, in biology. Two theorists, one experimentalist, uh, and they'll each talk for up to about 20 minutes, and then hopefully we'll have um, uh, about half an hour uh, to, to, uh, to, to, for Q&A for you to uh, quiz them. Um, so the first speaker is Dr. Jenny Brooks. Now, Jenny works at iSense, which is at the London Centre for Nanotechnology, uh, based at UCL. Uh, she's currently not working in quantum biology, she's working on biosensors, but what she's going to talk about tonight is research that she conducted as a research fellow funded by the Wellcome Trust on um, whether quantum mechanics plays a role in the sense of smell. Without further ado, over to you, Jenny. Thank you. Um, so yes, hello everybody. Um, I'm Jenny and I'm going to talk a little bit about smell and how smell works and perhaps quantum mechanics helps us understand how smell works. So we actually know an awful lot about the biology of smell. This is Nobel Prize winning work. Axelm back in 2004 actually discovered the machinery with which we do our smelling. So we know a lot about biology, but I would argue that perhaps not so much is known about the physics of smell, and by that I mean smell is a really fascinating problem. You have a small odorant molecule, just um, typically tens of atoms, and it's meeting an odorant receptor to get recognized, which can be tens of thousands of atoms. This is a real David versus Goliath. I mean, what is this odorant molecule actually saying, communicating with this large odorant receptor protein? What is the physical interaction there? Um, so that's the question, and I believe that scientists quite like to um, ask these sort of questions and be able to um, give the answers to aliens that come down from Mars. So how do we explain smell to ET, for example? And we can quantify other stimuli. Um, we can quantify sound, for example. A high-pitched note is a high-frequency wave. We can say that taste is a chemical reaction, acidic reactions. Taste sour, that's protons. Um, colour even can be described, so we can call green 500 nanometers. So we can define these scents and we could explain them to aliens, but we can't really do that with smell. We can't really define and quantify smell. I mean, we could try and sub stuff something up E.T.'s nose, but <laughs> it might not even be his nose. Um, <laughs> we just don't know. Um, and he might even have something more sophisticated than the nose, but I think that that would be very difficult, actually, because the human nose is really, really impressive. 
it's actually less impressive than a lot of species. So bears, bloodhounds, and sharks are also very, very good at smelling. But I want to emphasize that humans are very good at smelling too. And you may not notice this, you might not take advantage of it perhaps, but we have a biosensor which is on there, it's right on the front of our faces, and it can do amazing things. So, for example, our nose is incredibly sensitive, we can pick out parts per billion, so we have billions of non-smelly odorants and one smelly one. You can, the nose can literally pick that out of that crowd of a billion. That's very sensitive. Not only that, but the nose is incredibly selective, so you can actually detect the difference in bonds. So um, if you had one methyl group pointing one direction versus another, equatorial versus axial, for example, you can actually spot that difference, you can smell that difference. And that's only 0.1 angstrom, one hundredth of a billionth of a meter. That's very selective. It's also really versatile, so if you um, came across a synthetic chemist that had invented a new smell, a new odorant, your nose would be able to smell that without any training. The nose just knows smells. That's pretty impressive. And finally, it's really reliable. So if you're unfortunate enough to have anosmia, so you lose your sense of smell. And that's actually usually to do with an insult to the head. So you might have had um, some injury to the brain area that does the smelling. And that's usually what accounts for anosmia. It's actually very rare that you get um, receptors malfunctioning so that you can't smell at the cellular level. And one of, those reasons, that, one of the reasons to explain that might actually be because the olfactory sensory neurons are constantly regenerating, which is another very impressive property for the nose. So the human nose, and most noses and species, is an amazing piece of na nose nanotechnology. And um, we've talked a bit in the series about quantum effects and how we can use in the laboratory quantum effects, such as, for example, atomic first force microscopy and AFM. You can look at the atomic detail of molecules. You can actually see atoms. And these days, you might even be able to see chemical reactions happening in molecules. That's very impressive. But I want to indicate that actually, maybe the nose is even more impressive because it's doing this too every day, and we kind of take it for granted. So. I'm going to start with the basics. I'm going to start at the big picture before I go down to the small picture that we think might be quantum and talk about what happens when we smell. Now, you may not know this, but when you smell, a molecule goes into your nose. Um, it has to be volatile. It has to be dry. It has to be small enough to get into your nose. But if it can, then you can, you can smell it. And this is often why smell is called a very intimate sense. So when you're smelling something, you're literally interacting with the outside world. So what happens when the small molecule gets into your nose is it diffuses through a mucus layer, and out into the mucus layer projects a cilia, which is like a hand from the olfactory sensory neuron that projects into this mucus. And coated all along the fingers of the hand, you see olfactory receptors, odorant receptors. Once the odorant meets the odorant receptors, it does something. And that something causes depolarization of the cell. That causes the brain to light up. Recognition, smell, I've smelled something. One thing that's quite neat about odorants and smelling, and again, this is Nobel Prize winning work, but it's actually been shown that there's a one-to-one -one mapping between the odorant lighting up and recognizing a smell signal right back down to the odorant receptor that has been activated. So you can map from the brain back to the cell. 
And this is pretty useful. There are very many odorant receptors. There are actually 390 at least functional odorant receptors that respond to odorants. Contrast that with the three color receptors in the visual system. It's an awful lot of odorant receptor types. So it's quite nice that we have this theoretically simple way to map from the brain to the odorant receptor. So, um, talking again about the Nobel Prize winning work, if you look at the odorant receptor activation that Axel and Buck have done for several odorants, um, odorant receptors of different types will respond to different odorants. So, um, one odorant can activate many odorant receptors, but also one odorant receptor will be activated by many different odorants. So, you can see for the two examples I'm showing, hexanol versus heptanol, which are very similar molecules, um, six carbons versus seven carbons, um, very similar shape, the only difference is the extra carbons, um, you actually got very different excitation in the brain, and correspondingly, very different odorant receptor activation. So smell is often defined as a sort of combinatorial code. When you're smelling something, several odorant receptor types are being activated, and those receptor types sort of spell out the smell and is unique to every different molecule smell. So, talking again, going back to this small picture, looking down even further down this theoretical microscope, what are we looking at? We're looking at a very small molecules, such as this one, docked into the odorant receptor, which is very large, David and Goliath, as I say. It's almost like me knocking on the door of Buckingham Palace and expecting the queen to open the back door and the corgis to be running out. This molecule is doing something very far away from the actual action that's happening inside the cell. So what is that something? What is it doing? Well, there's one theory that states that what the odorant is doing is fitting into the odorant receptor like a key into a lock. So, basically, the odorant receptor is feeling the shape of a molecule. However, if you look at this, if you look at the shape of some molecules, you ought to be able to predict the smell, but we find that we can't always do that. For example, a lot of these odorants we see here look very structurally diverse, and yet belong into the same smell categories. So we have a group of musk odorants, a group of fruity odorants, some camphoraceous mothball odorants, they're actually very different shapes, very different structures. On the other side of the coin, we actually have odorants that are structurally, in their shape, very similar, and yet smell very different. So, in this example, urine versus odorless. Um, and the only difference here is a methyl group. Same shape, just an actual extra functional group, but a difference in smell. And the other popular example would be mirror image molecules. So you have Two molecules related by mirror image symmetry, like your left and your right hand. Exactly the same shape, they just have this mirror image symmetry. And they can often smell quite different, like this example, caraway versus spearmint. So, the lock and key isn't actually, in this version, very predictive when it comes to a smell theory, but it's also not exactly very explanatory. Because even if you have a lock and key fit, what's actually going to open the door, what's going to cause this signaling event. One idea, which was first put forward um, back in 1664 by Tyndall, Dyson and Wright, but more recently, um, again, rejuvenated by Luca Torin, is that we're smelling the molecule's shape, not smelling the molecule's shape, but smelling the molecule's vibrations. So the conjecture put forward by Luca, is that what we smell are the quantized vibrations of an odorant, 
And the way that we are doing this is via a biological inelastic electron tunnel spectroscopy. So what do I mean by vibrations? Um, vibrations are everywhere. All molecules of atoms are subjected to the forces of the nuclei and electrons interacting. So we have this constant movement, this constant dynamic. There are vibrations happening all the time, even at zero Kelvin. And this vibration can be quantized. But can it explain smell? One example, which I think is quite nice, is that the sulfur molecule, the small vibrating molecule you see there, the yellow one, that smells unsurprisingly sulfuracious. So like the gates of hell, it smells like rotten eggs. It's horrible. But so does decaborane, that other much more complicated molecule. Now that's weird because the decaborane doesn't contain any sulfur. Why would that be? It could be that they vibrate at a certain energy. They have equivalent energy vibrations at 2,600 wave numbers. They both have sulfuracious character. So another quantum mechanical concept that I just want to briefly introduce before we talk about it in the context of smell is tunneling. So in the classical picture of tunneling, you'll have an electron modeled as a ball that if it rolls towards a classically forbidden uh, barrier, an insulating barrier, it will bounce back, it will reflect back. There's not much chance of it turning up on the other side of the barrier. On the other hand, if we model the electron as a wave, you have a distinct finite probability that that wave is going to penetrate through the barrier. So the electron appears on the other side of the barrier. Um, which is fair enough and sounds very hypothetical, but this is actually observed in the laboratory via inelastic electron tunneling spectroscopy which is basically, in this case, a phenomenon where you have two metal junctions that may be separated by this insulating barrier, this classically forbidden region. And yet, electrons are able to hop across from one metal to another, and you get a current at metal two. It will usually do this via an elastic route, so that electrons don't lose any energy, they just zip across, and you find them on the other end of the classically forbidden region. However, you could actually bridge this insulating barrier by putting a sulfur molecule, for example, right in the middle of the barrier, and you will still have electron transfer. But it might be the case that the electron transfers, and in doing so, it loses energy, and that energy corresponds to a vibration in the sulfur molecule. That's an inelastic route. So we have two options, the electron traveling elastically, inelastically. So what does this mean for olfaction? So these cylinders are trying to describe the odent receptor. We have um, a carborion molecule that approaches the odent receptor. What we need for electron tunneling, obviously, is electrons, and we need them to be available at a donor position on the odent receptor. Now, the idea is that the electron travels from this donor to an acceptor position on the odent receptor. And in doing so, it imparts a force, an impulse, and this impulse kicks the molecule into a vibration. The electron has crossed, the odorant leaves the odorant receptor, and the electron goes on to the next step of signal um, transduction, which is to depolarize the cell. That's the idea. So just to reiterate the important points, in this model, we have to have a donor acceptor splitting, an energy gap splitting within the odorant receptor that matches a quantized vibration, matches a phonon mode of vibration in the odorant. And that's what I call the right vibration, 
Yeah, I don't have to have the correct matching vibration for you to smell for the inelastic channel to be excited. On the other side of the coin, we have the wrong vibration. So you have an odorant that doesn't match the odorant receptor, doesn't go with the odorant receptor type, or you have no odorant at all, the odorant receptor is empty, and that would correspond to the elastic channel. Importantly, for us to model discrimination, for us to understand if smell is possible, it would need to be the case that the inelastic channel dominates over the elastic channel. So we have smell winning over not smelling. And happily, if you like graphs, this can be all described by a reaction coordinate diagram. We have one parabola for the donor, which is the state where the electron is on the donor, versus a state where the electron is on the acceptor, which are the other two parabolas here. And just to emphasize, we have two possibilities. N equals one, which corresponds to a quantum of excitation of a vibration, the inelastic channel, versus N equals zero, no excitation, the elastic channel. Now, classically, as I talked about the electrons being balls, you might be able to envisage this as an electron rolling about the donor surface. It might be a little bit trapped there. But since there is an option for it to move on to the acceptor surface, and this option might be lower in energy, so the ball is rolling down a hill, there is a possibility that you'll find the electron on the acceptor, and this would be an elastic channel option. So no phonon of vibration is excited. The electron has just moved from the donor to the acceptor. That's a classical idea. But if we think about quantum mechanics, if we use quantum mechanics tools, there's a possibility if we analyze what we call the wave function. So when I was looking at the electron as a wave, what's more important is the possibility that wave functions will overlap, and this drives the transition from the donor to the acceptor. And if we appreciate all the energetic states in the system, if we look at the electronic states and the vibrational states, if an odorant is present with the right energy, it actually turns out that we get a decent overlap of the wave functions. And therefore, we get a driving from the donor to the acceptor. We get the electron tunneling, and it does this via the odorant vibration. So, <laughs> even more happily, if you just love equations, this can also be captured by um, a race equation which is based on Fermi's golden rule, which I won't get into. But what it's used for is essentially to look at the speed with which the electrons get across, whether it's inelastically or elastically. So in other words, to find a rate, to see which rate wins, or if you like, to look at which channel is the most probabilistic, which is the most favorable. And I want to emphasize some important parts, so I'll try and be brief. Temperature is included in the equation. So this is actually a semi-classical equation. There are quantum effects, which I shall talk about, but temperature plays a part. The quantum effects come in here. There is an odorant spectra that can be calculated based on the odorant's quantized vibrations. And also another important point is the donor acceptor tuning. That has to be there for this discrimination to happen. So we have to have odorant receptors tuned for these various odorant vibrational modes. Even more excitingly is you can put numbers into this equation. It's solvable. We have formalized the question as to how we smell. Could it be quantum mechanical? And we can find an answer. We can actually put some decent numbers into this equation and see what we find. So what these numbers basically are are involving the, the quantized vibrations, so for example, the sulfur vibrations by H bar omega. We also include the odorant spectra, which is basically a measurement based on the, the 
energy due to the change in force as the electron moves via this odorant excitation. We also have to take into account the energy and the fluctuations of the environment. So we're not just looking at the odorant's vibrational mode. We're looking at fluctuations in the odorant receptor protein. And that's captured by the reorganization energy. Finally, we also have to consider um, an electronic hopping integral, which is estimated based on estimates as to how the odorant binds into the odorant receptor, which is based on hydrogen bonding. So we have all the ingredients to solve this equation. And we find that when we do, that the crucial result is inelastic tunneling winds, so smelling winds. The rate equation gives us a result we like. Um, but this is very much dependent on our parameters. We have to have sensible parameters, the ones I've just shown you. For example, this reorganization energy, this relaxation in the environment, the fluctuations in the environment have to be low in energy. They have to be below 62 milli electron volts. Actually, if we go above 62 milli electron volts, then the relationship inverts and we go from smelling to not smelling. So the equation is very much dependent on the parameters of the environment. And in this case, it's very much dependent on the reorganization energy being very low in the protein. So what's quantum about this? Tunneling. Uh, we wouldn't have discrimination without the tunneling event. In fact, the electron's journey is facilitated, maybe accelerated, by the presence of the odorant with the right vibration. Not only this, but we have to have a matching of states. We have to have an energy gap in the odorant receptor that matches the vibration of the odorant. This is discrete quantized energy packets. And finally, we have to have an odorant vibration that stands out amongst the thermal vibrations in the environment. These are the quantum elements. And I just want to finish up by generalizing that um, fit is, of course, important in the smell process. You have to have the molecule getting into the odorant receptor. It's necessary, but it might not be sufficient. We might need to know other information about the odorant. So it might be more of a swipe card model. It might be that there's some internal information, such as an electromagnetic strip or maybe vibrations, that's actually fitting into the lock, but actually opening the door in signal transduction and olfaction. And I will leave with that. Thank you very much, Jenny, and thank you for introducing quantum tunneling, because uh, our next speaker is going to make use of <laughs> So you, you gave us the primer. Um, quantum effects in smell, as Jenny pointed out, is still something that uh, it's hugely exciting, but it's fair to say a lot of researchers who work in olfaction studying uh, how we smell have yet to be convinced by it. Our second uh, speaker is going to talk about a quantum effect in biology that I think is probably the most well-established now, uh, and, and to a large extent, partly down, down to, to, to his work. Um, Nigel Scruton is, is Professor of Applied Chemistry and Head of the Institute of Biotechnology at the University of Manchester. Um, the work he's done on... Uh, how, understanding how enzyme catalysis works. Enzymes are hugely important in, 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 in uh, biology, uh, and it seems that the reason they can do the job that they do, speeding up chemical reactions in living organisms, is thanks to quantum mechanics, and in particular, quantum tunneling. So over to you, Nigel, to explain proton tunneling in enzymes.
Well, let me start by uh, thanking uh, Jim for his very kind words, uh, and, and of course the invitation to speak to you uh, all this evening on, on quantum biology. I had a long sort of love affair with uh, quantum tunneling, I guess, for probably two decades, perhaps longer than I, I, I'd like to think. And what, what I'd like to do to this evening is give you a, a very brief uh, overview of what we've been doing. Uh, we've, we've moved from a point where I think maybe 20 years ago, uh, tunneling in biology was seen as being rather esoteric and perhaps less well appreciated by uh, the, the majority of the community. I, I think, as Jim has alluded to, uh, where we're at today uh, is that tunneling is now wi widely accepted, uh, at least for hydrogen transfer reactions, and potentially we're seeing how tunneling may also have an effect uh, potentially in, in other larger atom transfers as well. So my, my brief was to focus very much on, on quantum tunneling to persuade you of the idea that life processes mediated by enzyme catalysts uh, are, in fact, absolutely dependent on quantum tunneling. And if there's no other message that you take home today, I, I'd like to uh, plant that seed in your mind uh, that really quantum tunneling of hydrogen is now in the mainstream uh, of, of biological uh, catalysis. So I start with a cartoon. Um, it, it, I set out the challenge, and what I, what I think I need to do uh, is break this down into two parts. In, in part one, we'll consider wave-particle uh, duality uh, that we've uh, had an introduction on already, and I'll set out the limitations that, that imposes on how we can get transfer of hydrogen uh, in, in a quantum mechanical sense, or indeed an electron in a quantum mechanical sense in a biological macromolecule. And then perhaps more importantly for people like myself, I'm an experimentalist, and I spend a lot of time worrying about how we might detect uh, quantum tunneling in a biological context, and that's a really challenging thing to do. Uh, and as I say, we spent 20 years trying to sharpen up the tools that really allow us to provide convincing evidence uh, that quantum tunneling is an aspect uh, of biological catalysis. So, you know, I guess this cartoon is, is, is a metaphor almost for how late we are as biologists come into the scene. Uh, here we have a sort of particle that's enticed, I think, by this rather seductive-looking wave from wave mechanics. And it's, it's really uh, a, a very late realization uh, that uh, in, in biology, uh, these two really have to get together through the wave-particle uh, duality uh, concept. I think we also have to take the clock back. I mean, biological catalysis has got a really uh, distinguished but long history. Uh, we can chase it all the way back uh, to 1896 with Emil Fischer's very simple models of enzyme action, the lock and key uh, mechanism. Uh, 2013 was, in fact, a very important uh, uh, year for, for enzymologists. We celebrated the 100th anniversary of the classic paper by uh, Michaelis and Menton that set out the basic rate expression uh, for, for how enzymes work. And en route, what we've also done is celebrated allosteric interactions in protein molecules, uh, novel ways of regulating uh, catalysis through, through long-range uh, effects. Uh, and these have been tremendous advances in, uh, in our understanding of mechanisms. And every week in journals like Nature and Science, we see these wonderful structural biology depictions of enzyme mechanism in active sites, novel mechanisms that we haven't seen before. And that sort of creates the impression that perhaps we know everything we need to know about enzyme catalysis. We can draw the curly arrows, we can see how the bonds are made and broken. But my uh, position is, have we really got the right uh, physical description of how that catalytic reaction works? The theories that we've honed over the last 100 years, are they in fact appropriate uh, for the type of chemical reactions uh, that, that we're seeing? 
So here is that history. Uh, we can chase it all the way back to, as I say, Emil Fischer, the rather sort of simplistic idea of, of lock and key, where uh, a molecule can sit within an enzyme active site in a perfect configuration, and in some way that magically transforms uh, that substrate uh, in, into a product by a mechanism uh, that we have to uh, clearly uh, uh, determine. And on roots, we can see variations of that. We, we end up with what's been dubbed the imperfect key analogy by JBS Haldane, where the binding of that substrate in the active site isn't quite perfect. There's a little bit of strain that's induced. It's, it's a, if you like, a, a misfit. It's a, akin to putting a, a, a sort of the wrong key into a lock and, and twisting that and perhaps having uh, an imprint that's, that's put onto, onto the key as a result of that. Now, we call that ground state destabilization. That puts energy into the system. It gets you up the reaction barrier a little bit. So, in, in essence, uh, it can get you to the top of the summit. And then, of course, we've got Linus Pauling, who introduced the idea uh, that enzymes uh, really stabilize uh, the so-called transition state, this fleeting uh, chemical species that sits right at the top of the barrier uh, in this very short period of time. And by stabilizing that as a, as a species, uh, then we can have uh, a much lower activation barrier for this reaction. So all this sets up a sort of classical picture of how enzymes might work. We have a, a reaction barrier, a hill, if you like, a mountain that we have to climb. We need to move from the left-hand side uh, to the right-hand side, and the way we do that is to overcome uh, this activation uh, barrier. So, catalysis by enzymes, I refer to Wikipedia here. Uh, this would create the impression that we know everything about uh, enzyme catalysis, and we can see all sorts of uh, simple facts that our biochemistry students learn about uh, on, on a regular basis in our undergraduate lectures. And all these are embedded in a classical picture of how uh, catalysis uh, will work. So we learn that enzymes are dynamic molecules. Uh, and we can see classical uh, examples of how uh, conformational selection induced fit can uh, accommodate that substrate in the active site. We can see how bond strain, proximity, putting the reactive groups next to the substrate we want to turn into products, are all useful strategies for driving that enzyme forward. Uh, and we can have all sorts of ideas borrowed from classical chemical catalysis. We can position uh, proton donors and acceptors, and we can use electrostatic catalysis. All this helps to define a classical view uh, of, of enzyme uh, catalysis. The issue is, however, it wasn't really until the 1990s that we began to see, if you like, the darker side of an enzyme's personality. Uh, I think, but bluntly, enzymes can cheat. Uh, so rather than driving reactants over uh, this large energetic barrier, uh, they also seek out channels or tunnels in the way that we've heard in the first talk uh, to get around this energetic uh, need uh, to go through this uh, very uh, high energy uh, uh, transition state. And we do that by invoking the wave-like behavior uh, of, of, of a particle, maybe an electron, maybe even a proton. So let me just remind you of the basic, uh, uh, the basic properties, if you like, of a wave. So in the, in the classical sense, we're, we're very preoccupied by the height of the barrier, and enzymologists for the last 100 years have been worrying about ways in which we can bring the height of that barrier down to speed up the chemical reaction. But in a quantum world, of course, the predominant effect is the width. We need to transfer, for example, a hydrogen atom from a donor to an acceptor site, uh, and really the issue here is, is one of width and also one of mass of the transfer particle. You can see from this very simple expression 
uh, that the uh, rate constant for, uh, for tunneling in this case is related to the mass of the transfer particle, uh, the width of the energy barrier. There's also a height component in there, but the predominant effect uh, is, is one of width. And we can see this for electrons all the time. We've known about electron tunneling in biology since the 1960s, and the electrons are very small, uh, and they can tunnel over very large distances, typically of around about 14 angstroms. If you look at structural biology of macromolecules, you can see how cofactors in those molecules are separated by distances of around about 14 angstroms. It's ideally set up to allow an electron tunneling uh, reaction. The problem we had in the hydrogen transfer field is that the hydrogen nucleus is actually quite, well, comparatively heavy. Uh, and therefore, the de Broglie wavelength the, uh, of, the, of the wave uh, was always uh, thought to uh, be a problem in, in the sense that we want to transfer a hydrogen atom or a hydride or a hydrogen radical over distances typically just under an angstrom. And the real question is, is the wavelength uh, of, of hydrogen sufficient to allow that to happen uh, with, with significant uh, tunneling probability? So let's get back to hydrogen transfer uh, and consider some of the key questions that we want to uh, get answered, I guess, in relation to a potential role for quantum tunneling. The most important questions are set out on this slide. Does hydrogen tunneling, tunneling occur? We didn't really know this 20 years ago. Is the de Broglie wavelength uh, sufficient to support a high probability of tunneling to contribute significantly to these reaction rates? Uh, a controversial question is, if tunneling occurs, have enzymes adapted to exploit quantum tunneling for catalysis in a productive way? And if so, how? Uh, how do we detect quantum tunneling in, in biology? Uh, do we have methods that will give us compelling evidence? Uh, and if tunneling occurs, is it restricted to electron transfer? Uh, can it be applied to hydrogen transfer? Or even more radically, could we even consider much larger molecules, perhaps a methyl group, uh, that might, in principle at least, uh, be able to transfer uh, by tunneling? Now, all these are very difficult questions. Uh, pose some very important theoretical and experimental uh, challenges, uh, and, and I think really uh, one needs to keep a very open mind as to, as, as to how we move forward. So very quickly, I'll give you a, a snapshot of how we measure uh, quantum tunneling uh, in, in, in biology, and I think really this has been led, I think, in this case by the experimentalists. This is the fact that it was picked up by Rudy Marcus at a quantum biology meeting I attended probably about seven or eight years ago, where we talked about how experiment had really led the way in the hydrogen transfer field, and theory was beginning to catch up. And I think that's true. Uh, and the issue, uh, or the issues that we had uh, in the hydrogen transfer uh, field was having the appropriate experimental probes, if you like, to look at tunneling in biology. In electron transfer, you can't modify the mass. An electron is an electron is an electron. Uh, but in the proton world, of course, you can talk about deuterium, you can talk about tritium, you can modulate the mass and you can use that as an experimental probe. And that's exactly what experimentalists have been doing uh, over the years. So this is my summary slide. What have we learned about hydrogen tunneling in the last 10 to 15 years? There are some things we know a lot about uh, and I think uh, are now widely accepted. Tunneling happens at room temperature and I think that's quite a, a, a remarkable thing for biology. It's widespread and essential to life. Hydrogen transfers are ubiquitous in every, virtually every reaction uh, catalyzed by biology. These reactions, tunneling reactions, contribute about uh, 100 to 1,000 fold on the rate constant. So if you switch tunneling off, if you could do that in biology, every reaction would proceed at 100 to 1,000 fold less uh, if it was just modeled in a classical sense. 
What we'd like to know is how protein motions, fast motions, can compress. Uh, the, the, the width of the barrier, if indeed that happens, to uh, facilitate tunneling. And indeed, can we, uh, can we muck around with, with those characteristics? Can we stimulate tunneling by perhaps selectively exciting uh, the protein uh, to improve the dynamic profile and allow that reaction to occur? Definitely what we do not know at this stage, and there are polarized views in, in, in the literature, we don't know whether tunneling is catalytic, i.e. tunneling happens in an enzyme, but does it happen more in the enzyme than in perhaps a, a model reaction in the absence of the enzyme? That we just do not know. And we don't know whether tunneling of larger groups, like methyl groups or, or, or other small groups, uh, can, can, can be transferred uh, by tunneling. And we don't know whether enzymes have really evolved to use tunneling uh, uh, as a feature of, of their reaction. So my take-home messages are shown here. Um, a little sort of rather cheesy diagram shows a, a mouse going to the cheese through the barrier rather than over it. Uh, and uh, hopefully there are some key take-home messages that you can uh, put in your bag and, and take with you. Okay? Thank you. Thank you very much, Nigel. Well, we've heard two talks then about the role that quantum tunneling can or possibly plays in, in, in uh, biology. Uh, I think the interesting thing about Nigel's work is when he talked about replacing hydrogen with deuterium in the bonds, that uh, the, the tunneling rate will, will, will change dramatically because you're doubling the mass of the particle that needs to behave in this wave-like way because you're changing its wavelength. Um, it's probably fair to say that uh, Jenny's talk about uh, smell, there's also been work looking at replacing hydrogen with heavy hydrogen deuterium because that doesn't, that's not talking about how the tunneling rate changes, but whether the molecule, the, the, uh, uh, the scent molecule, vibrates at a different frequency when you replace the hydrogen uh, with something twice as heavy, because the, 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 the uh, vibrational frequency would change. In fact, something that I've been working on at Surrey is whether uh, quantum tunneling of protons plays a role in uh, mutations in DNA. Um, Point, jump, um, proton tunneling across from one strand of DNA to the other. And of course, a, a nice experiment that one day hopefully will be done there is to see if you, you could replace that hydrogen with, with deuterium and see if, uh, if mutation rates drop, because that will tell you then quantum tunneling plays a role there. And we, we simply, simply don't know yet. The third and final talk is, is looking at a different phenomenon in quantum mechanics, uh, quantum uh, coherence, so not quantum tunneling. So, uh, Alexandra Elia Castro, we're very lucky that actually she's made it here today because uh, I think the baby's due in two weeks and, and you know, the babies can come early. Alexandra works uh, in, is a lecturer in the physics and astronomy department at UCL and she works on the quantum physics of biomolecular processes. In particular, for some years now, she's been working on a very hot topic a lot of researchers around the world are very excited about and that is the role that quantum mechanics uh, looks like it's playing in the process of photosynthesis. Over to you, Alexandra. Right, so first of all, I really would like to thank Jim for giving me the opportunity to be here tonight and to my baby for not coming early so that I can actually share with you uh, the research we've been doing in trying to understand the role of quantum effects in photosynthesis. I am by training a physicist and I've been working for many years, PhD, master, etc., in quantum physics, and it was just at the end of my PhD that I really fell for this field. Um, I never liked biology before, 
but it was until I started studying photosynthesis and actually understanding biology at the molecular level that I have to say what I said in the program, I fell in love with this field. And I'm still like that. Um, I have been able to work on this because of the generous funding of many institutions, UCL, EPSRC, and the European Union through the FP7 program, which is funding a European project precisely, joint efforts with other groups across Europe to try to understand whether there is a role of quantum mechanics for the function of these biomolecules, and eventually, far from now, in biology. Um, let me start with uh, just telling you what is my motivation, what brought me to this field. What you see on the screen is a figure that maybe many of you might have come across in Wikipedia, and it's an estimate of the photosynthesis activity in the world. It's not a real map like the ones that NASA is taking at the moment, but it's just an estimate. The majority, well, not majority, a little bit over half of this photosynthesis happened in water, and this is what is illustrated in blue, and the rest of photosynthesis and biomass production is in land. Now, the total amount of this biomass production is around 230 billion tons. This is equivalent to 100 terawatts of energy from the sun, which is equivalent to six times the sun, the global consumption right now. It will be about three times the estimate consumption in 2050. All of this is to say that these numbers really make you think if we were able to do just a little bit of what these photosynthetic organisms do, you said the level of man, imagine what we can achieve with this. The sun belongs to no one. Sometimes it skips England, but still it belongs to no one. Um, there are many photosynthetic organisms, plants, bacteria. I have investigated um, the macroscopic uh, photosynthetic units in different of these systems, but lately I focus particularly on cryptophyte algae. Cryptophyte algae, so what you see on the screen, if I can point, this is a microscopic image actually taken in the lab of Greg Scholes, one of the leaders uh, doing experiments on these systems. Uh, this is an image of the membrane of the cell of one of these little um, organisms. And this is a, just an schematic of the photosynthetic apparatus. So these molecular machinery are the responsible for capturing light, transferring light to these molecular centers where the chemistry starts. So it is amazing, at least for me, to imagine that those 230 billions of myomass start here in something that is so tiny. Tiny that it's as tiny as, as imagining you have your hair, take a little bit of your hair, divide it in a million parts, then divide one of those million parts in another million parts, and that little bit is doing the first step in photosynthesis. Um, when it comes to quantum effects, we focus basically on these molecular units, which we call light harvesting antenna, which are the ones responsible for capturing light, transferring within antenna to other antennas, and eventually to another molecular center, which we call the Netsch's battery. That is where the chemistry starts, where electron transfer happens. Quantum effects happen here and happen here. 
And there are some quantum effects that are very well established and well known for over two decades in these systems. There are others that we are starting to understand now, and our story about it is still to be written fully. Um, of course, then, we want to do this, and we want to understand this, because we want to solve really fundamental questions, and is, what is the role of quantum mechanics for life on Earth? But, because that's such a tough question to answer, that we can spend centuries, we also want to know what we can do with this knowledge. So we want to make sure that we can use this knowledge to build something useful. The first thing that comes to your mind is a little solar cell that maybe we can use at all times in everything that we use. But there are many other possibilities once we understand this quantum phenomena that I'm about to talk. Now, I am interested in this field because the most exciting part of this is that you don't work alone. You work with many other communities. And for me, it's what has kept me there, because I keep learning and learning and learning from these other communities. I come from this community, a community that is interested in understanding what is quantum, how you probe it, and how you use it. But the communities that traditionally have investigated this problem are communities in biomolecular physics, which are trying to understand this this paradigm of structure, dynamics, and function. And the community of physical chemistry and quantum chemistry probing these systems in time and every time faster, faster time scales and trying to describe at the atomic level what they can predict. So we will only be able to give convincing answers when these four fields come together in a coherent picture. Now, let me tell you what an antenna is. You probably were introduced to this already. This is an illustration of the uh, P545, so it's an antenna in this cryptophile algae that absorbs a, the green, um, a green color. And what is in black are the pigments. Those are the ones that are actually responsible for absorbing the light. And what is in ribbons are the proteins that bound these pigments together. And this circle, is illustrating the solvent in which this is, um, um, that is present, uh, where these light uh, harvesting molecules are. Now, every part of this, uh, every element that I mentioned here, plays a key role in the functioning of this molecule. We know for sure, so, that stability of these molecules depends strongly on quantum mechanics, and I'm not going to talk about it. We also know for sure that how these molecules absorb energy depends strongly on quantum mechanics, and that's a quantum phenomenon that I will describe. And what we are trying to understand now is that there is something more subtle, a more interesting phenomena from those that we knew before that might be happening in this case. And that is where the debate is still on, but we are getting more and more convincing evidence with the time. So let me tell you what um, Nexiton is. These are just simply the pigments of my light harvesting antenna, and the different colors indicate that if the pigments were isolated individually, each of them will absorb a different color. So let's focus just on two of those pigments. Imagine that we will have only two of those pigments. So an exciton is the following. Oops, oops. <laughs> an exciton is the following. So 
if my right hand is one of the pigments, so then this pigment alone will be able to catch this quantum of energy. If this is another pigment, this pigment alone will also be able to catch only this quantum of energy. But when these two pigments are interacting, and the interactions are at the level of electrostatic interactions, induced dipole-dipole interactions, so they are not polarized continually, but with the light, there is a reorganization of the electronic um, charge, and these two interact via that electrostatic interaction. When that happens, then they cooperate, and they behave as a single unit, which can capture two different possible energies. And that's quantum mechanics at play. My system now cooperate to capture quantums of energy that are different from the energies that they will capture individually. This is a collective quantum effect. It's at play in the systems for absorbing, and this has been known since the 80s. Well established, confirmed experimentally. Now, it's been known for already some time that these excitons are very important for photosynthesis. If you have two antenna, yes, <laughs> if you have two antenna, so now imagine that my right hand is actually an antenna, not just one pigment, but many pigments. It is easier for me to transfer energy if I cooperate with all the pigments to transfer to another antenna. That's precisely what is being shown. Transfer from one antenna to another antenna occurs from these collective states, and that gives these systems an advantage for transfer of energy. This is quantum mechanics one, again, at play in photosynthesis. But there is a more subtle effect, which is the one that has kept us there investigating and trying to understand this system, and it's how this energy is distributed within an antenna. Now, to understand that, the traditional picture was the following. It was thought that they might transfer an exiton randomly. It was thought that maybe that was the mechanism that energy was transferred around within an antenna. But experiments told us that actually that wasn't the picture. It happens that the picture is a little bit more interesting. And when it is underlying that picture, are two quantum phenomena. One is the fact that these systems not only have these electrostatic interactions that make this captured energy in this quanta, but also every pigment in itself will vibrate. Now, this is bounded by proteins that also vibrate, and it's also in a solvent that have many vibrations. So surely, these vibrations will play a particular role. It happens that there are two kinds of vibrations there. There is one type of vibrations that all these systems exhibit, and it's a kind of very nearly matching vibration. By matching means that this quantized motion of each of these pigments, some of those have excitations that match the energy difference, nearly match the energy difference between two of these excitons. What this happens is that each pigment might be vibrating, but it turns out that it vibrates at a frequency in which one quanta of that vibration, the phonon that Jenny talked about it, matches the energy difference between two excitons. These are different energies. It happens that if my pigments 
turn out to be vibrated at an energy difference that is equal to the difference of energy between these two, transfer will happen. Now, this transfer is not random as the ball that we're passing around. This transfer has a well-defined uh, periodicity. But there is another quantum phenomena, which is the one that is associated to the proteins and the solvent. You have many vibrations there that are all of different frequencies. What they will do is they will change the energies of my excitons randomly. I will transfer as well, but not with any periodicity. Not yet. With no, with no periodicity. What this means is that these vibrations will help transfer energy from here to here, from this exciton to this exciton, but simply increasing the probability of finding the system with this energy. No back and forth. The previous mechanism, however, would do the following. So if my system starts in that particular low energy, you would expect that it will not move. But because you have that matching vibration, what you observe is that energy can go back and forth in these two levels. But because I want to transfer, it makes no sense to continue going back and forth. Eventually, I have to transfer to the lowest energy level. So is this interplay between that matching vibrations and the quantum phenomena associated to it, and those more random vibra most, mostly random vibrations that will help the system to go down the hill? These two quantum phenomena are concomitant with another aspect that is even more curious, and is the aspect that have been, has been measured in the experiments, and is these two excitons, the first aspect of these excitons, that they are quantum entities, is that they are solved in a, part, a particular quantum of energy. But there is another aspect to these excitons. But it's the fact that they behave more or less, more or less like a wave. So when you have two waves, what happens with them if you superimpose them? They interfere. At the quantum level, this interference causes a particular, many, many different quantum effects. In the lab, they haven't much, they haven't been able to see exactly the interference pattern, but they have seen signatures of that interference pattern. The signature is that when you have two waves and you superimpose them, if they have different frequencies, then they beat. And in the lab, they have observed that beating. So they know that there are two quantum entities that are interfering and they are observing the beating. Now, you can imagine the previous effect that I described, it is useful for transfer of energy, but we don't know yet what this effect is good for. But we are very, very excited because this particular quantum interference can be very useful in many other tasks. And with that, I would like to finish. Thank you very much. Very good. Thank you very much, Alexandra. Okay, well, I think, obviously, as you can see, it's impossible in three 20-minute talks to convey and get you to understand all the details of quantum biology. But the one thing I, I hope you take 
back from this is that this is not sort of hand-wavy, speculative, wacky, on-the-fringes science. This is very exciting, cutting-edge research uh, and on a number of fronts. In fact, Alexandra and I both had a, a, a two-day conference in Cambridge tomorrow and the day after where many of the world community researchers in quantum biology are coming together. What, what is interesting is that this is still a small community. It's, it, this is a very nice time for us to be working in, 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 this, uh, in this field. Because it's still speculative, because it's still, there are so many open questions, there aren't many physicists, chemists and biologists who, who are working in it or are convinced by it. Uh, uh, but I think maybe five years from now, ten years from now, ever, ever, Tom, Dick and Harold will be wanting to be working in it. So it'll be, you know, th those people who've been working in it a few years, uh, for a few years, who've established themselves, will be the fathers and mothers of the field of quantum biology. Um, right, we have uh, just over 20 minutes left, so if I could invite all the speakers to, to come and join me here, we'll open up for, for Q&A, um, and we have uh, a couple of roving mics, uh, so anyone who has it, please have a seat uh, in the spotlight. Yeah, okay. uh, and Ro so raise your hand if you have a question for any of the speakers or even a general question. We have one up there already if you want to exercise. And then we have a, a gentleman right at the back, another one here. <laughs> uh, and we'll, we'll see if we can... We, we won't, I won't get everyone to answer every question because that way we can get through uh, more, more questions. Yeah. So yeah, my question's on the uh, quantum effects for smelling. I was just wondering, at the beginning of the slide, you said that there are ways to quantify sound and hearing. But um, so through all that, how smell may just be like vibration-assisted spectroscopy, how would you quantify sound then to an extraterrestrial? <laughs> oh. Smell, smell. Oh, <laughs> the question is, how would I quantify smell? It's, 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 it's questions for you. Sorry, Jenny. I, I'm sorry. I thought the question was on sound. How would I quantify smell? So um, the proposal that smell is a combinatorial code um, by Axel and Beck um, feels very definitive. So one smell molecule is going to activate many odor receptors. So fruity, the way you spell out fruity, F-R-U-I-T-Y, I can spell. Um, those would correspond to certain odorant receptor types that sort of code for that odorant receptor. Now, if you were going to believe that smell is quantized by vibrations, then those letters in that word fruity could correspond to different vibrational modes that are probed in that odorant. So odorants can be quite complicated, not hydrogen sulfide, because it's just three atoms, sulfur, and two hydrogens. But you can get um, an odorant molecule with many atoms and different functional groups. And those modes of vibrations, there might be several modes of vibrations that are probed by different odorant receptors, thus giving a source of code that would characterize that scent. The, the, there's a loose sense in which you can say it's possible, if the vibration theory is correct, that we, we, we are listening to mm. smells, you know, in the same, mm. same way that you listen where, where there's the whole molecule, air molecules vibrating at a certain frequency, hitting your eardrum, making that vibrate. Here you've got vibrations of bonds within molecules. That are, but, so it's a very, in a very loose sense, in, in a way it's sort of more poetic to say that we can hear smells, but it's still, we're talking about vibrations and frequencies. Mm. The vibration, the spectrum, the odorant spectrum would be the defining. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but, um, so, but if... Oh, a molecule hello? has multiple vibrational modes. Wouldn't that mean that any odorant will express multiple kinds of smells? 
So there are going to be modes in common. So for example, most odorants that have sulfur will have a sulfurous mode, about 2,600 wave numbers. That might be moderated a little bit. So that would, for example, uh, activate one odorant receptor that's tuned to, let's say, that sulfuraciousness. But it's about the combination. So most odorants have their own spectrum that defines the odorant particularly. So it's about those, those particular modes that might be exciting those particular odorant receptors that is actually quite characteristic for a certain molecule. So you mean, mean a large molecule will have lots of bonds all vibrating with yeah, their own exactly. characteristic frequency between atoms. So yes. what, what is it about an odorant molecule that it's one characteristic frequency, one bond that's vibrating when there might be other bonds connecting the other atoms in the molecule that have their own vibrational frequency? Oh, well, so you, you have a spectrum of frequencies. You have sort of, you have, you can have collective modes where you have all the atoms moving. You might have localized modes where you have one functional group making the predominant motion. Um, but the mode that will be probed will be to do with the, how the odorant receptor is tuned. So I talked about the matching, a resonance between the odorant donor receptor splitting and that particular mode that is excited. So it's about what the odorant is sort of set, what the odorant type is, receptor type is set for probing. Okay, thank you. Um, yes, the gentleman out of the back. Hi, uh, I am anosmic to masks, phenylizer cyanide, um, rotting meat, but nothing else as far as I know. Is musk like rotting meat in some way? Does this tell you anything? It's yours again, Jenny. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there are as far as I know, there are an awful lot of odorants that fall in the musk category. This is a very like, strong group of structurally diverse odorants that often all smell very musky. Um, and again, there's going to be overlap um, with these odorants having similar vibrational modes that will account for um, muskiness, for example, like sulfuraciousness. Um, and I think another interesting thing to note is odorants can actually vary in intensity. So there are some molecules, oceanic molecules, that smell like the sea. Um, but if you have very much of it, if you sniff a lot, if it's very intense, concentrated mixture, that can turn into a rotting smell. So there's an intensity factor as well. So it might be your musk molecule smells like rotten meat at a high threshold, at a high odorant concentration. Okay. Mm. I have no idea what musk <laughs> is, so there we are. <laughs> <laughs> one at the top, good. One at the top, and then one down here. Where's the, where's the um, top? <coughs> How... How does the quantum tunneling model or the inelastic-elastic uh, scenario explain when exposed, let's say, to hydrogen sulfide for a long time, you can no longer smell it? You've sort of poisoned the system. So I would say that that's um, to do with the feedback mechanism. So as soon as... This is more to do with the, the further down the scale end of the signal processing, so I'm not sure I can really... Um, give a, a great comment on this, but as soon as the odorant receptor is activated, it's a GPCR, as soon as it's activated, there is a mechanism that works to sort of turn it off. So these odorant receptor responses are sort of timed out, as it were. You wouldn't continue to go on smelling things forever. That answers the question. Okay. Is, is this also yes. a smell question? Unfortunately, another question about smell. <laughs> no more smell okay. questions. Okay. Well, no, no, no. But I, mean, I mean, other questions, yeah. please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I am convinced it's a vibrational effect. You, know, you get such different structures, with totally different things like hydrogen cyanide, and there's another molecule, very different structure, like benzaldehyde. Both have an almondy smell, yet very different. So I'm convinced this vibrational argument is correct. An interesting point. 
as temperature decreases, vibrations change, that energy decreases. So could you, I mean, although we're not greatly tolerant to a wide range of temperatures, but at, as you lower the temperature, will the odors that we can, will they actually change? Is there any evidence to suggest that's the case? Because certainly the vibrational energies will. I, I don't think so. Um, so because, I say that because um, the odorant vibration that we're suggesting that is probed, that causes inelastic electron tunneling, is actually quite high energy. It's 200 millielectron volts versus KT, so thermal vibrations, which is 25 millielectron volts. So at room temperature, those quantum states aren't necessarily going to be populated. So I'm not sure cooling like your system down would necessarily... To go to, say, minus 100 or Yeah, like in which case all life processes <laughs> are I mean, in trouble. I suppose the, the only... We can actually... At the South Pole, when it's around minus 70, that's about the limit, of, um, and we have to be well covered up. But then, of course, mm. does... It's just an interesting thought, actually. Does, mm. does that yeah. change? Yeah. yeah. Mm. But, but, I mean, tunnelling. I mean, Nigel, in, in, the, in the enzyme work, that, the, the key experiments were exactly that, lowering the temperature and seeing how the efficiency of these enzymes changed. Yeah, the, I think the vast majority of enzymes will, will, will give you the, the types of dependence I showed you in, in the plots this evening. There's an interesting transition, though, that occurs when you drop the temperature below the glassy phase transition uh, temperature of proteins, where often you find a, a break point in, 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 in those plots. And again, that's reporting, we think, on the intrinsic dynamic properties of the protein molecule and how they are coupling to the tunneling reaction. So if the vibrations are really assisting the reaction in some way, perhaps by modulating the properties of the barrier, perhaps the, the width of the barrier, making it narrower uh, transiently to allow the wave function to penetrate through that barrier, uh, then as you, as you get below the glassy phase transition, then those sort of dynamics are, are affected yeah. in an in a adverse way. And that, that does have a knock-on effect on... It's very difficult to do those reactions with an enzyme because often you have to do a mix, unlike in the photosynthesis world where you have light to accelerate the, the reaction, we have to do rather clumsy mixing methodologies where the substrate is mixed with an enzyme to initiate the reaction. And the fastest we can do that is on a millisecond time scale in a, in a, in a machine or an instrument called a stop flow. There are, however, a couple of natural light-activated enzymes uh, out there in the world. And, and we've used one of those, and we've been able to take uh, the temperature axis right down into the cryogenic regime. And we see these wonderful breakpoints as you begin to change the dynamic profile uh, of the enzyme. So it can be done, uh, but it's... it's and so uh, what sort of temperature are we talking about? Uh, so the classic uh, glassy phase transition, when we're, when we're, we're talking around about sort of, I, I don't know what the glassy phase transition temperature is off the top of my head, but normally we're taking these down you know, from, from you know, plus 40 degrees right down to minus 90 degrees, and we'll see the break point right. in and around minus 28, 29, minus 30 degrees. Okay. Okay, we have a question here. We have another one there. Um... So far, male-dominated questioning. But, uh. Question on photosynthesis. <laughs> so, thank you for your talk. In your, in your talk, you, you talked about applications and, you, and obviously for energy production and storage, and then you hinted at there are other interesting applications, but you know, I don't think you described what those were. I didn't have the time, yeah. Can you <laughs> now, now you have. Yeah. <laughs> so, there are several possibilities, but one particular that has attracted my attention is the fact that uh, these molecules and the fact that you have this coherent energy transfer, what they are showing is that they operate out of thermal equilibrium. So there are small little thermal machines, but working at the quantum level. 
So the question is, can we use this quantum phenomena to actually have some thermodynamic functionality? These little molecules doing work and using heat for different, behaving essentially like a quantum heat engine. So this goes uh, parallel to a development that is happening in the quantum science that is a, it's called quantum thermodynamics. And the idea is that these molecular machines can also behave in a thermodynamic way, but we have to redefine what heat work and entropy is there. So there is an, an interesting um, avenue in that direction of creating these small thermal machines um, working away from the thermal equilibrium, so not thermal, non-equilibrium thermal machines, uh, working at the quantum level. I would say this is one of the ones that is uh, in, in this moment, I mean, it's a possibility that we are exploring in our research. So there are some other uh, uh, conjectures that have been put forward, but those are more speculative. Like, for instance, in the first time that uh, this quantum interference was observed, then it was speculated that maybe these were behaving as small quantum computers uh, doing a quantum search algorithm. It turns out that it sounds very exciting, but it doesn't work like that at all. But I think these quantum technologies and quantum science, when we have devices that are enhancing their functionality because they are using quantum phenomena, can give us a lot of ideas of how to use the quantum phenomena that we are observing here. We still don't know what is it useful for the biological function, mm -hmm but it can be very useful for quantum-enhanced technologies. I mean, that, that the quantum heat engine idea, I'm, I'm aware that, that this is still a, a very hotly debated topic. Mm. In fact, Alexandra is involved in, uh, we're, we're currently um, uh, uh, proofreading the, the US edition of my book, and so I'm correcting things that, sort of the, that went out in the UK edition that we try to bring up today. Alexandra's helping us with that, and clearly there's some controversy there about what a quantum heat engine can do, that somehow it's, it's utilising the quantum world to be more efficient than any classical heat engine we can, we can design. And it's all very theoretical, but the fact that you have leading scientists still debating and disagreeing on something like this shows that we still haven't un understood it. There's still a, a, a long way to go. So but it's, it's opening, nice to speculate. Yeah. But it's opening new possibilities, yes, not just yeah. the efficient solar cell, which... Of Which course, is the usual be, example. Yeah, yeah. And it would be the greatest example because, as I said, the sun be not to no one. But there are others which are on the line of this second generation of quantum technologies. The first quantum effects gave rise to all the electronics that we have nowadays. This effect, this exotic people would call of this quantum coherence and quantum uh, interference, will give rise to a new generation of quantum technologies. And we're hoping that we can actually explore. The avenue that I'm exploring is this one of the quantum thermal machines, but I don't think it's the only one. We have seen that quantum effects in these systems, I think half, of course, the time to show, but we have seen that if you make a comparison of quantum versus classical, the advantage that you observe in, in, in the quantum is directionality of the energy transfer. So we might have effective uh, light harvesters with some increased directionality that they would have if they were just made out of quantum, uh, classical phenomena. So there are avenues to explore. They have to do with how energy is transformed and stored, on the one hand, for thermodynamics, on the other hand, just for directing energy to a one particular location. Thank you.
Yes. Um, in the last week, both my sons have had MRI scans for experimental reasons. Um, but I was just wondering, in the proton tunneling case, if there was any uh, energy effects, any, um, energy level effects or something, with regard to um, having, when the proton spins are aligned by, for example, an external magnetic field, does that affect, is it only the width of the barrier that's affected or are other effects such as spin alignment um, involved as well? Yeah, I, I, so it's not, not easy to answer that, uh, that problem. We've recently gotten interested in uh, field alignment uh, studies in, in enzyme catalysis for other reasons, for the radical pair type reaction, which again is a uh, mm. notionally a quantum effect, looking at singlet triplet type mixing. Uh, and, and, and in those cases, we've, we've literally just published actually this year a, a fairly comprehensive study where we have looked at radical pair reactions in a number of redox enzymes, enzymes that catalyze electron transfer reactions, uh, uh, with a view to maybe investigating whether external fields of that type are perhaps uh, have adverse effects on, on, on reactions, therefore might, for example, potentially have a link to, to poor health. Uh, we find no effect whatsoever uh, on many of the systems, in fact, all the systems that we sampled uh, in, 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 the, in that study. It's not a, an exhaustive study, but it's a fairly comprehensive study. Uh, so we can take that as an indication of where the field is, um, but I'm afraid that's where we're at. <laughs> it is interesting contrast, isn't it, that we happily sit inside huge, I don't know how many Tesla magnets and MRI scanners, uh, and yet another aspect of quantum biology is the, this magnetoreception, the idea of explaining, using quantum mechanics to explain how certain animals can sense the Earth's magnetic field, which is 100 times weaker than a blinking fridge magnet. <laughs> and yet, somehow that, the Earth's magnetic field, can affect chemistry, and yet an MRI magnet we don't feel is doing us any harm. It's, it's quite in, an interesting contrast. Or affecting our sense of smell or anything. Or affecting, yeah, well, there you go. There's a, there's a whole new area of research opening up already. <laughs> okay, uh, some more questions. Up the back there, and any at the top? I'm trying to see if... Uh, Pardon? None at the moment. Oh, fine. Good. Thank you. Right. Yes. I'm afraid it's another smell question. That's right. We haven't had one for a few minutes. That's all right. <laughs> um, does deuterium sulfide smell eggy? <laughs> Very interesting. Um, I don't know the answer to that particular question, but there's been some really nice studies on isotopic substitutions and odorants. Um, so Luca Torin and his team have looked at how Fruit flies can be trained to avoid uh, deuterium isotopically substituted molecules. I don't think it was hydrogen sulfide. I think it was something else. Well, I mean, is, is, it, is it appropriate to say that Luca Turin is in the audience here and we could maybe ask him if he wanted to answer that question? <laughs> can see him. He left. <laughs> he, he left in... Okay. <laughs> well, I hope because we... Can... I'm not sure about D2S. Certainly been documented that mm. certain if you substitute all the hydrogen atoms with deuterium, it does change the odor. Mm. I'm not sure about D2S, though. I'm not sure mm. about deuterium sulfide. Okay. Yeah. We don't know is the answer then. Right, we have about three minutes left, so maybe time for a couple more questions. Uh, yes, 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 and, and yes. I'm not, I'm not excited because a woman's asking a question, it's just, but, but it, it, it would be... But it completes 100% misogyny would not be very good. Sorry. <laughs> um, so this is a question um, with proton tunneling. So um, being able to build and maintain a proton gradient is a key component for life. 
Um, is there any evidence that um, proton tunneling has not been... So, so we've, um, we've been hearing about evidence for life using proton tunneling. Is there any evidence or research going into how life may be blocking proton tunneling to maintain these proton gradients that are so essential for life processes? Oh, that's a smart question. Uh, I don't have the answer. That's a very good grant application, so I'll make a, <laughs> note. <laughs> I'll yeah. make a note of that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess in principle you could, you could imagine uh, if, if dynamics are linked to the proton transfer coordinate that you could have dynamics that work against a, a narrowing mm. of, a, of, a, of a tunneling barrier, uh, maybe to transiently expand it to prevent the wave, from, from, wave function from leaking through. It's a nice idea. Um, I know nobody who's, who's working on that at, at the moment. I think the only thing I would say is that in many of the experimental studies we've done over the years, we, as classical enzymologists, we tend to sort of mutate proteins by changing residues in active sites, which tend to sort of affect the local geometry of how things work. And that usually has a deleterious effect on the rate constant for a reaction, dampens down the rate constant. And what we see in that case often is that the nature of the temperature dependence I showed you in the talk also changes. So an optimal enzyme would have a temperature-independent I-step effect. That's, that reflects the fact that it's optimally set up to do a quantum tunneling reaction. But as soon as you start tinkering around genetically with the, with, with the structure of the protein in the active site, and you, you affect the geometry very slightly, they become temperature-dependent I-step effects. Now, it's very controversial how you interpret that, but a number of us in the field, myself included, would argue that you're, you're, you're modulating the, the dynamics of the barrier in some way to make that process less, less effective than it would be in the conventional wild-type enzyme. So, so it's a long answer to your question. Maybe there is something going on there. We hadn't realized mm. it, or, or we hadn't sort of framed it in the sort of way that you have, and it's a very good, good way of, of seeing it, but we have been destructively engineering proteins for quite a number of years. Oh, thank you. So was there a question up there? Yes, and it'll have to be the last one because we've just about run out of time. Well, he paid all the last one, so. um, Hi, it's a kind of left-field question, but um, and I'm fascinated by all the different aspects of um, quantum effects, but I just wondered, um, as a psychologist, if anybody's been investigating evidence of quantum effects in the human brain. I don't know if you're aware of those or if they've actually taken place. I don't know. I mean, the, the, certainly, somewhat controversially, 20, 25 years ago, there was the work by Penrose and Hameroff that suggested that consciousness is, is, is triggered by quantum coherence of sort of vibrations of uh, proteins called tubulin. Uh, and, and Roger Penrose had a speculative idea about why that happened. Uh, I think it was fair to say it was very exciting at the time, but a lot of people working in, 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 in the field decided then, yeah, it's, you know... I think we probably mentioned this at the last talk, that just because consciousness is mysterious and quantum mechanics is mysterious doesn't mean the two are connected. Um, but I think but it's, it's, it's an interesting point because I think what we're seeing now with this, in the last decade of people working in quantum biology is that they're, they're walking before they can run. I think make, making the jump of quantum mechanics linking to the brain, first of all, it opens up all sorts of uh, connections with what we now call woo-woo, uh, you know, that's, you know, Deepak Chopra territory of, you know, um, quantum mechanics, you know, quantum entanglement explaining telepathy and all that sort of, and so there's that dangerous thing. But, but the other is that it's probably, we don't understand the function of the brain 
anywhere near enough to even begin to, to um, suggest where quantum mechanics might play a role. But I'm, I'm sure that's, that's for the future. I don't know what, how you feel. Well, we certainly have lots of neuroscience students interested in the field. And I have to say I have received, I don't know, several requests of uh, supervising either master or PhD in that area. I haven't risked to because I know how controversial it is and I am kind of a safe, so I go where the experiment is showing something. But I do think there is a field that if you manage to make a breakthrough, it will have a great importance. So mm. I will be continue investigating, but not publishing yet anything. We'll be back in a few years yeah. for, 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 to discuss that subject. I think we have to end it there. We have run out of time. Thank you all very much indeed for coming. But please, before you leave, join me in thanking our three speakers this evening, Jenny Brooks, Nigel Scruton, Alexandra Eliak. That's it for this month. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode and you'd like to support our work, head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Royal Institution. You can donate as little as $1 a month and you'll get access to exclusive content, early releases and digital freebies. Thanks.